We have uh, been in a series, uh, well thank you Chad for filling in last week, I appreciate it. Uh, Before that, uh, we were in a series called More Than a Feeling, uh, and we're still in that series, More Than a Feeling, talking through what we believe, why we believe it, and why it's important. Uh, Because so much in our culture now is based on feeling instead of fact. Right, the, the truth is a relative thing in our culture now. So what is, it that, what is it that we actually believe? And is our belief based on just something that someone said one time? Or is it based on something that we, we feel inside of us? Or is it based on truth? What we believe is based on, on truth. So over this series, we've been looking at, at the truth behind what we believe, what we believe about God, that God is the, the holy, just creator of all things, that he is eternal, that he is all-knowing, that there is nothing that you can do that will make God love you more or less in this moment or for your whole life. God will love you because God is love, and he is that eternally. He is all-knowing. He is the holy, just creator of all things. We, we talked through each and every one of those things that week. Next, the next week we talked about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What do we believe about Jesus? Do we, just, do we feel like Jesus is just a good guy? Do we feel like he was probably doing some good stuff, but I don't know if he's our Savior? No, this, this book, this truth, teaches us all we need to know about Jesus. In fact, Philippians 2 really kind of rolls it out for us, that Jesus was God, Jesus became human, Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross, so that one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what we believe about Jesus. This is what we get from our truth, from this book. What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? We believe that we have empowered lives through the Holy Spirit, that our lives should look different because we have the Holy Spirit within us. That's not just a feeling. That is straight out of this book. What do we believe about this book? This is what we talked about two weeks ago. That this book is, is such a powerful book. This book has to be central in our lives. This book is satisfying to us. This book is fulfilling to us. This book is sustaining for us. That this book is so important in the lives of us as Christians. This week, we have talked through who God is in, in all three of his uh, and all three beings, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, talked about this book. But I want to kind of maybe backtrack just a little bit to talk about you and me. What do we believe about us? <laughs> kind of a weird thing to talk about, right? What do we believe about us? What is, this, what is, what is the truth about you and me? Yeah, we, over the last six weeks, have actually talked about this a few times. You know, usually when, when, uh, when a pastor comes up and says, we're going to talk about what Scripture says about you and me, normally we talk about sin and we talk about salvation, and, and we've done that over the last six weeks. We have talked about who we are in relation to God. If you remember in our First John series, we talked about how God is light, God is holy, we are not. But Jesus stands in the middle to forgive us and bridge that gap so that we might be in an eternal relationship with God our Father forever. We, we, this, is, this is key to our faith. This is actually the gospel, right? This is, this is who we are. This is, uh, this, is, this is what the Bible says about us. And it even starts in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we were created in the image of God. You and I were created in the image of God. What does this mean? This means you have worth. This means you are created special. That means that God did not mess up when he made you, even though we may tell ourselves that sometimes. You are created in the image of God. 
Chapter 3 comes along in, in Genesis, just like page 3 in our Bible, right? And, and sin comes along. And this is where we enter this conversation that I was just having about God is holy and we are not, but Jesus bridges the gap. Sin comes into the picture. Adam and Eve eat the apple in Genesis chapter 3, and, and sin comes onto the scene. And on page 5 in my Bible, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it says that God regrets making humans. Page 5 in, the Bible, in my Bible, I don't know what it is in yours. God regrets making humans. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement, right? I and mean, we're talking about who, what the Bible says about us. What, the, what does the Bible say about you and I as human beings? Well, in chapter 6, it says that God regrets making us. So that puts us in kind of a weird spot, right? But it, like we said last week, two weeks ago, when we started talking about the Bible, the rest of this story is about God chasing us down and wanting so badly to be in a relationship with you and with I that he would do anything, that he would send his own son, Jesus Christ, to live on this earth, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve to die so that we might live eternally with him forever. This is the gospel. So yeah, page 5 in my Bible says that God regrets making humans. But man, page 6 and on, man, God loves us. God chases us. God pursues us. You are desired by God. He wants to be in a relationship with you. So this morning as we talk about what, is, what does the Bible say about you and me? I want to I kind of maybe take a different track through what the Bible says about you and I. Because we've, we've talked about sin and salvation over the last six weeks, I think three or four times. And so I want to talk about on the flip side of that. What does the Bible say about you and I if we believe in Christ? If we claim Christ, if we call ourselves Christians? Here's a fun fact for you. The word Christian is in the Bible three times. Once in Acts 11, once in Acts 26, once in 1 Peter 4. I had a professor in college, he, he was kind of talking to us one time and he just said, man, I wish Christians would stop calling themselves Christians. Because Christian has become an adjective for so many different things. We have Christian everything now. We have Christian books, we have Christian music, we have Christian lawyers, we have Christian, literally everything. There's, there, Christian can be an, an, an adjective for so many things. He says, that word is not really in Scripture to talk about those who follow Christ. There's a different word that people use in Scripture to talk about people who follow Christ. It's called disciples. So what does it mean for you and I to be a disciple? Not just a Christian. Let's go deeper than that for a second. Let's go deeper than just, just being a Christian. What does it mean for you and I to be a disciple? The, the word disciple is used in Scripture in a few different ways. Right? There's, there's kind of a, a few different groups of people that get lumped into this word disciple. Let's talk about those for a second. The first group of people that kind of get lumped into this disciple category is, is kind of the people who are they're just kind of there to listen. You know, Jesus is teaching, he's in this crowd, he's got a large crowd around him, and there's people that are there, they're not really convinced that he is who he says he is, they just want to hear what he has to say, because Jesus is, 
He's drawing a crowd. Everybody wants to be a part of a crowd. So there's people who get lumped into this kind of giant word of disciples that are just there to kind of, kind of listen to what Jesus has to say. They're not convinced yet. They're not, uh, they're not necessarily followers yet. They are just there to, to listen. There's a second category of disciples that, that are kind of in this group of disciples. There are the people who are, who are not just there to listen there are people that are there that are already convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. He can do the things he says he does, but they're a little bit on the fence of whether or not they actually want to follow him. They're a little bit on the fence of whether or not they actually want to do what Jesus is calling them to do. And then you have this third group of people. These people who, who are definitely convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can do the things he says he does but are also just committed therein. Whatever Jesus asks them to do, they are going to do. Wherever Jesus tells them to go, they are going to go. They are, they are committed. This is kind of those people that are lumped into the disciples in Scripture. Now, just think about this with me. Where do you think most people fell in those three categories? I think there were probably some in, the, in that first category, those who were just kind of listening just to, just to get a taste of who Jesus was. They weren't really convinced necessarily. In my opinion, I think probably the vast majority of the people were in the second category. People who, who were convinced. They, were, they would say, if you were to ask them, who is Jesus? Is Jesus the Son of God? They would say, absolutely. I believe He is who He says He is. I believe He can do the things He says He'll do. I believe... All of that. But I don't necessarily want to go do anything. And then there's this small group of people in that third category. The people who are convinced and will do the things that God is calling them to do. In fact, I, I know this to be true because if you turn with me to Acts chapter 1, there's a passage here where Peter is talking with the believers. Acts chapter 1, verse 15 says this. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Now, before I go on to this next phrase, I want you to know that the original language, that says, all the believers... Every one of them. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Think about this with me. Jesus in the Gospels has preached to crowds numbering thousands. If you remember, in, in the Gospels, we read about a, a, a time in which Jesus fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. There are thousands of people who have listened to him, who have followed him. There, when Jesus goes into a city, the city just stops because Jesus is there. The people want to listen. They want to be there. Now, Jesus is, has been crucified. He has been risen back to life. And in just the beginning of Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus go into heaven. And who is there? Who are the people? And Jesus, remember, before he died, he said, I want you to go here and wait. 
How many people are here? All the believers. 120. 120 people thought, you know what? Even though he died, I believe he is who he says he is. I believe he's going to do the things he says he'll do. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to still do what he said to do. 120. I mean, just, just think about that. Just that many people in this third category. Now I want you to think about the church today. Not, not the biblical church, but I'm talking about not just our church, but the overarching big C church. Which category do you think is most full in our churches today? I think it's probably a pretty good mirror. There are those in churches all around the country, all around the world today, who are here just to listen. Not really sure about Jesus. They're not really sure they believe he is who he says he is or he'll do the things he says he'll do. They're not really sure he's the son of God. There are probably a vast majority of people in our churches who are in that second category, who are absolutely convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, that he does the things he says he'll do, but just kind of get stuck on the going part. And then there is another section of people who are, who are all in. Who are just completely sold out for God. No matter what he says, no matter where he says to go, I'm going to go. What does it mean to be a disciple? See, I think that the greatest need in the church today is not more money, it's not more power. It's not more influence. I think the greatest need in the church today is for the people of God to become real, true disciples of Jesus who are going to not only just believe the right things, but are going to translate into their lives and go and do the things that God is asking us to do. So what does the Scriptures, what, is, what does Scripture tell us about what it means to be a disciple. Go with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18. This is uh, Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. Jesus has just been baptized in the backside of chapter 3. Beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is led into the desert by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Bible, as Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This next passage is immediately following this, immediately following Jesus in the wilderness, being tempted. He goes out to start his ministry, and he is kind of picking the people that he wants to be on his team. And here's, here's what he says. Chapter 4, starting at verse 18. <clears throat> as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee... He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I want to just, just 
We're going we're gonna to camp out in this passage today. I think there's a few things in this passage that teach us what, it, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to, to be so sold out and bought in? What does it mean to live in this way? Now, even just, this, <clears throat> even just this, this first part here, I think it's, it's pretty clear that to be a disciple, as these, these four men were, it is a, it's an act of self-abandonment. Self-abandonment for the glory of God, right? They, they, they were no longer, as soon as Jesus called them, it says immediately they got out of the boat and they followed him. Now, I used to wonder why, why it was so sudden. Why, what made these guys so comfortable just being able to leave their boat and follow Jesus? Two of them left their dad in the boat to follow Jesus. How? What is it that makes them so comfortable to be able to say, yeah, you know what? Stranger coming up and telling me to follow you, I will, right? It's like uh, there's no stranger danger in these guys. There's nothing like that. They're just going to follow him. He says, follow me, and he goes. Why? Well, it makes a little more sense when you think about it in the context of this culture. If you've heard this before, I apologize. I want to say it again. This, is, this, is, this culture viewed, viewed school a little bit differently, Right? School, school was different for them back then. School was, you didn't go to school to learn math or history or anything like that. You went to school to learn scripture. That was the whole point of school. So you would go to school and you would start school at the age of six. And they called this the, the Bet Talmud. They would go and they would start school at the age of six. And what they would do from the age of six to ten is they would memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So six to ten-year-olds memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorized. At the age of 10, you would be tested. If you had the the books memorized, you could move on. If not, the rabbis, the teachers would tell you, go home, learn your family business, be warm and well-fed. If you were the best of that group, if at 10 years old you had the first five books memorized, you could move on. This, <clears throat> this uh, was called the Bet Talmud. Sorry, the first one was called Bet Sefer. This one is called Bet Talmud. From the age of about 10 to age of about 14 or 15, you would begin to memorize the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament. So you've got 10 to 15-year-olds memorizing the Old Testament. Now, if you have a Bible in your hand, I want you to just open up to the book of Matthew, turn back a page, and then just hold that in your hand. This is the Old Testament. This is, in my Bible, 924 pages of Scripture. Memorized. Now, if you're thinking, Pastor, there's no way I could do that. You, you probably could. If that was all you did, I think you could do it. Here's how I know that. When your favorite song comes on the radio, do you know all the words? Yep. Even if it was one you haven't heard in 20 years? Yep. When you watch your favorite movie, do you know the lines before they come up? Yep. Yep. We, we memorize what's important to us. These kids from 10 to 15 years old would memorize the Old Testament. 
That's wild. So, if between the ages of 10 and 15, this would probably be me, you could not memorize the Old Testament, they, the rabbi would tell you, go home, learn your family business, be warm and well-fed. But if you had it memorized, if you were now kind of the best of the best, you would move on to this next phase. And this next phase, called Bet Midrash, you would essentially apply to a rabbi. You would apply to a teacher. And they would begin to text, to text you. This is 2019, right? They would begin to test you. <laughs> they would begin to ask you questions. What do you think about this? How do you interpret this scripture? You know, talk about 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 24 for me. What does that say? What do you, how, what do you, what do you take that to mean? And if... At the end of that test, and here's what this rabbi is looking for. This rabbi is asking you questions, and in his mind, here's what he's testing. Can you do what I do? Can you be what I am? And so at the end of this test, if a, 10 to 15, if a 15-year-old does not pass the test, remember, they still have the, the Old Testament memorized, this rabbi would say, Go home. Learn your family business. Be warm and well-fed. But if that rabbi thought that you had what it took to do what he does, he would say to you, follow me. And those students would literally begin to follow him. They would go where he was. They would eat where he ate. They would go to the places where he slept. They would sleep where he slept. They would walk behind him no matter where he went. There was a saying in these days, and it was this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you follow so closely to him that you are just covered in his dust. So here's, here's the thing. Rabbis would, would typically begin their teaching at about 30 years old, they would begin to teach. So, interesting fact, Jesus comes on the scene at about 30 years old. And he comes in and he goes down to the water and he sees James and John. And he sees these other two disciples. And he looks at them and he says, follow me. You can understand now why immediately they get out of the boat and they follow because Jesus is telling them, I believe in you. You can do what I'm doing. Let's go. I used to, I used to try and imagine, you know, what is, what is Zebedee, this dad in the boat, what is he thinking when he goes home with no kids and, and maybe no fish because they were the fishermen, right? Like, what, is, what does he say to his wife when he walks in the door and she's like, hey, where are the boys? And in previous, before I knew all this, I, that's like a conversation that I just wanted to be a fly on the wall and just be like, how did this fight end up, you know? <laughs> Knowing all of this, though, you can imagine this conversation. You can imagine Zebedee probably not even finishing the fishing for the day. He's going home, and he wants to tell his wife, you'll never guess what happened today. A rabbi came to our boys, and he said to them, follow me. 
and they went. You can imagine the celebration at home right now. They are celebrating because their boys, who remember, weren't the best of the best. They did, not have, they did not pass the school. What were they doing? They were fishermen. So they had heard these words before. Go home, learn your family business, be warm and well fed. And here's Jesus coming along and saying, follow me. I believe in you. You can do the things that I'm doing. Right, and it's just an immediate thing. It is a self-abandonment for these four disciples in this passage, for the other ones and, and the other gospels. You, in another gospel, you read that they had a boat. They had just like a boat full of fish. They had, a, they had a boat full of fish that they had never caught before, and they leave all of that to go and to follow Jesus. Immediate, self-abandonment. So, so when we say yes to follow Jesus. When we say yes, it is, it is a self-abandonment. No longer are we living for us. See, these disciples, when they go, and when a rabbi says to them, follow me, they go, and they just they do life differently. They do whatever the rabbi does because they want to be like the rabbi. So when we say yes to Jesus' call to you and me to follow me, our lives need to look a little bit different. We need to be abandoned to ourselves that no longer are we living for ourselves. We are now living for something much more than that. Something that looks a whole lot more like Jesus. Amen. See, practically, what does this look like? Or we don't need to, there's no one to physically follow, right? We have Jesus. We have it in his word. We have his guidance. We have his direction. We have the person of Jesus in here. We'll talk about in a second. What does it look like practically to follow him, to abandon ourselves and live for him? I mean, I think it looks like holding on so loosely to the things that we have here and holding so tightly onto the person of Jesus Christ that nothing else satisfies anymore. That only his word satisfies that only what he tells us to do is happening. See, when we think things like this, then, then our job becomes a conduit in which we can, we can make a difference for Christ. The money that we have becomes a conduit for which we can bless others. Our, our family becomes a conduit through which we can, we can be an example of the life that Christ told us to live. Everything changes when we talk about being a, being a disciple, being self, being abandoned to ourselves. It changes, it changes everything. All right, we need to abandon ourselves. We need to live for Him. That's, I think that's the that's a, a huge thing that we get from this passage. Jesus says, "Follow me," and it is it is immediate. All right, I'm in. Let's go. Here's the second thing I think we need to do. We need to be abandoned to ourselves, but we also need to be students of Jesus Christ. Amen. These men, leaving the boat, were not just going just to go. They weren't going for a day. They weren't going for just a little bit. They didn't tell their dad, hey, we'll see, it's not at dinner. No, it was, they were going, and they were going for a purpose. See, when... when Students followed the rabbi. They would literally follow them everywhere. And traditionally what would happen is they would sit each and every day in the temple. And they would hear the teachings of the rabbi. They would have conversations with their rabbi. They would, they would talk about scripture. They would talk through, through everything. 
Jesus was, was a little bit different than that. See, Jesus didn't, didn't kind of just sit with his boys in the room and just talk. Jesus taught his disciples by doing. He taught by going out and by, by serving other people. He taught by going out and, and just allowing them to watch how he lived. He lived as an example of what it means to live that way. See, Jesus didn't have a school. He didn't have a seminary. There was no membership classes. There was none of that. And I, but he still, he still taught them. And I want, you to, I want you to see this, that being a student of Jesus is more than just kind of a, a cognitive kind of transfer of information. We're not just, I, I, okay, I know that now. Thank you for teaching me this now. I, I understand that. It's not just a bunch of facts that we have in our head. Being a student of Jesus is about going out and, and really living how he, he lived. This is what it means to be, to be a student of Jesus. And even just the way that Jesus prays. May they be one, Father, just as you and I are one. May they love one another. Right? There's even just this, the prayers that Jesus prays for his disciples are, are relational prayers. He wants us to build relationship with others. See, being a student of Jesus is about building a relationship with Jesus. It's about digging into the word and understanding this is how Jesus lived. And this is how Jesus is calling us to live. And it's giving the, the world, the person of Jesus, displayed through you and me. It's, it's more than just head knowledge. It has to be more than just head knowledge. So we need to abandon ourselves for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we need to be a student of Jesus Christ. Here's the last thing. We need to follow the mission of Jesus. Obey the mission of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just stop at saying, follow me. In this passage in Matthew chapter 4, follow me. And what? And I will make you fishers of men. I will give you a new purpose. Right now you fish for fish, <laughs> obviously. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to give you a new mission. I'm going to give you a new idea. I'm going to give you something else, something new to chase. I'm going to give you a new purpose. This is what it means to, to be a disciple of Jesus I mean, think about how unconventional Jesus was in con kind of conveying his mission. All right, if, if I had three years, and I was Jesus, and I was going to try and just get across everything that I needed to get across and build as big of a movement as I was going to build, I would hire a PR firm. I would have conventions. I would have all kinds of this other stuff going on in the background. Jesus did none of that. Jesus, the way that he taught his disciples was through kind of this one-on-one -on -one engagement. Jesus invested, he didn't invest in, in big showy things. He didn't invest, invest in, in big crowds, a way to get big crowds. In fact, when Jesus had big crowds, oftentimes he would turn around and say something that just makes the crowds go away. Like in Luke chapter 14, there's a large crowd, and Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, unless you hate your father, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters, you cannot be my disciple. That's, that's a, like a way to kill the mood, right? That's a great way to disperse the crowd, right? Jesus, what do you mean we need to follow you? Well, unless you hate your mother, father, brother, sister, you can't be my disciple. Okay, yeah, see ya. I'm not in for that movement. Jesus would have this habit of saying things and just kind of killing the mood, but that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to invest 
and these 12 men. And through these 12 men, they would each go and invest in people. And they would go and invest in people. And they would go and invest in people. You see this in the early church. The early church, how did they grow? They grew because they were invested in one another. They weren't out on the streets like claiming Jesus Christ. They were living it out. They weren't putting together these giant conferences to say like, look who Jesus is, look at all he did for us. They were paying each other's medical bills, eating in each other's homes, praying together. And scripture in Acts tells us that God, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. See, the mission of Christ looks a lot like relationships. It looks a lot like building relationships with the people around us and showing them Jesus. This is what we need to be as disciples. We need to be people who, who are able to say, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians. Let's actually go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 31. This is, what, this is what Paul says. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then he says this in chapter 11, verse 1. I think this needs to be kind of our, our mantra as we go about living the mission of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is how Paul taught the church in Corinth. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is what being a disciple is all about. It's about going so closely to Jesus, abandoning ourselves and just going all in, being a student of him, leaning into the mission of Christ. This is what it looks like. It's, able to, it's being able to say these words to anyone that is curious about Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Two questions for you this morning. One, can you say that? If someone was to ask you about Christ, could you say this to them? And they were curious about how to live as Christ. Could you say to them, follow me as I follow Christ? Are you following Christ in the way that you should? Are you one of these, are you in category one, category two, or are you one of these committed believers who's going to go and do and whatever God wants you to do? Can you say these words honestly? Follow me as I follow Christ. Here's the second question. Are you a disciple? And if not, what's keeping you? I would just challenge you this week to think about this. Think about these, these words. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? In a world where a Christian means a lot of different things. I'm a Christian. What does that mean? 
So many different answers for that. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think that gets to the point. This is what scripture says about you. If you have said yes to Jesus, this is the way scripture is expecting you to live. Abandoning yourself and your interests for the glory of God. It's diving so hard into scripture and into the person of Jesus to be a, to be a real student of him to learn what he wants to teach you, to be able to live the way he wants you to live. It's, it's about being a student of Jesus, and it's about obeying the mission of Jesus. Remember when we talked about Jesus? Remember the end goal there? That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the whole reason he came. Jesus was human. He God. He became human. He humbled himself on a cross so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. This is the mission of Jesus Christ. This is our mission. How do we do this mission? How do we fulfill this mission? By building relationships with people around us and being able to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ.